Please turn, if you will, in your Bibles to our scripture reading, which this morning is taken from Numbers chapter 23, verses 1 to 12. Again, our scripture reading this morning is Numbers 23, verses 1 to 12. It will become evident why we're reading that passage when we get into Joshua chapter 24. Perhaps you're aware of this passage. We're not getting to one of the one of the more funny instances, I think, in the Old Testament where God causes a, a donkey to speak. That's in the preceding passage, uh, but it's uh, certainly adjacent to that. And so we're looking at at Numbers 23 verses 1 to 12, and then our sermon text is taken from Joshua chapter 24 verses 1 to 13. Joshua 24 verses 1 to 13. But first, Numbers 23, verses 1 to 12. Brothers and sisters, this is the very word of God. Please give your full attention to it as it is now to be read. And Balaam said to Balak, Build for me here seven altars and prepare for me here seven bulls and seven rams. Balak did as Balaam had said, and Balak and Balaam offered on each altar a bull and a ram. And Balaam said to Balak, Stand beside your burnt offering, and I will go. Perhaps the Lord will come to meet me, and whatever he shows me I will tell you. And he went to a bare height. And God met Balaam. And Balaam said to him, I have arranged the seven altars, and I have offered on each altar a bull and a ram. And the Lord put a word in Balaam's mouth and said, Return to Balak, and thus you shall speak. And he returned to him, and behold, he and all the princes of Moab were standing beside his burnt offering. And Balaam took up, took up his discourse and said, From Aram to Balak has brought me, the king of Moab from the eastern mountains. Come, curse Jacob for me, and come, denounce Israel. How can I curse whom God has not cursed? How can I denounce whom the Lord has not denounced? For from the top of the crags I see him, from the hills I behold him. Behold a people dwelling alone, and not counting itself among the nations. Who can count the dust of Jacob, or number the fourth part of Israel? Let me die the death of the upright, and let my end be like his. And Balak said to Balaam, What have you done to me? I took you to curse my enemies, and behold, you have done nothing but bless them. Now turning to Joshua chapter 24, beginning reading at verse 1 and continuing through verse 13. Joshua gathered all the tribes of Israel to Shechem and summoned the elders, the heads, the judges, and the officers of Israel, and they presented themselves before God. And Joshua said to all the people, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Long ago your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates, Terah, the father of Abraham, and of Nahor. And they served other gods. Then I took your father Abraham from beyond the river and led him through all the land of Canaan and made his offspring many. I gave him Isaac, and to Isaac I gave Jacob and Esau. And I gave Esau the hill country of Seir to possess. But Jacob and his children went down to Egypt. And I sent Moses and Aaron, and I plagued Egypt with what I did in the midst of it. And afterward I brought you out. Then I brought your fathers out of Egypt, and you came to the sea, and the Egyptians pursued your fathers with chariots and horsemen to the Red Sea. And when they cried to the Lord, he put darkness between you and the Egyptians, and made the sea come upon them and cover them, and your eyes saw what I did in Egypt. 
and you lived in the wilderness a long time. Then I brought you to the land of the Amorites who lived on the other side of the Jordan. They fought with you, and I gave them into your hand, and you took possession of their land, and I destroyed them before you. Then Balak the son of Zippor, the king of Moab, arose and fought against, against Israel. And he sent and invited Balaam the son of Beor to curse you. But I would not listen to Balaam. Indeed, he blessed you. So I delivered you out of his hand. And you went over the Jordan and came to Jericho. And the leaders of Jericho fought against you, and also the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Girgashites, and the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And I gave them into your hand. And I sent the hornet before you, which drove them out before you, the two kings of the Amorites. It was not by your sword or by your bow. I gave you the land on which you had not labored, and cities that you had not built, and you dwell in them. You eat the fruit of vineyards and olive orchards, orchards that you did not plant. Thus ends the reading of God's most holy word. Let us pray. Gracious God, we thank you for your word. We ask for your blessing upon it. We have heard it, O Lord. We've read it together. We've listened. And now we pray for your blessings on your word as it is preached. Please guide the lips of the one who preaches and give ears to the ones who hear. Help us, O Lord, to exalt your holy name through the preaching and the hearing of your word. And may your word build us up. May it, may it encourage us in our faith. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Now, one of the things that I think that we have lost as a society, we have become increasingly connected in some ways. We have more opportunities to, to network and to interact, but it's all electronically. It's all, in a sense, remotely from a distance. And especially over the last eight, nine months, we have been more disconnected than ever in terms of face-to-face -face interaction. And one of the things that we've lost because of this, is certainly 2020 was not the thing that did it in. We were well on the way to that. Less and less actual FaceTime and more and more FaceTime on a screen. But one of the things that, one of the impacts or the effects that this has happened is that we have less opportunity, it seems, to encourage one another in our walk with the Lord. To recount the glorious deeds of the Lord. And by and large, that seems to have been reduced now to perhaps a couple or three hours on the Lord's Day. We live our lives very separately, segregated, sequestered from one another. And so we don't have the opportunity to sit around the campfire, as it were, to gather together and to be with one another and to think about and discuss and encourage one another in the ways that the Lord has benefited us, the ways in which he has worked out our salvation for us, the good and mighty deeds that he has done on our behalf. Now, in the next passage in 1 Samuel chapter 23, we're, we're not there today, obviously we'll be there, Lord willing, in a couple of weeks. We're going to learn about how God told David and his men to go and defeat the Philistines who were attacking Caleb. You see, 
Yes, the, the Israelites, when they crossed the Jordan River, they did a great deal of work in the, in the book of, of Joshua. If you've read through that, uh, we went through it many years ago. We saw that, that the Lord used the Israelites to take care of all of these various peoples that were living in the land of Canaan. The, the Hittites and the Ammonites and the, and the Canaanites and all of these, they were living there, but the work was not done. And so now, uh, coming up in cha- uh, chapter 23 of, of 1 Samuel, God is telling David and his men to go and to attack the Philistines. And we'll read there that David's men were afraid. And so David, who'd been told by the Lord to go and do this, he inquired of the Lord again. He wasn't quite sure. He he wanted to speak up on behalf of his men. And so he inquired of the Lord. And God told him that he would give the Philistines into David's hand. Now, as difficult as it might have been for these men to believe, despite the superior forces of the Philistines, because as we read in previous weeks, David only had 400 or so men with him. But despite all of this, God was going to cause David and his men to defeat the Philistines. Now, David doesn't seem to doubt this, perhaps because he as a young man was able by the power of God to defeat the giant Goliath. But sometimes, oftentimes, God's people need reassurances, and David's men certainly did. We need reminders of what God is able to do. We forget. We get down in the dumps. We become somewhat pessimistic or quite pessimistic. And that's exactly what this passage in the book of Joshua is all about. It's a recitation. It's a rehearsal of the history of God's saving works for his people. In Joshua 24, Joshua gathered all of the tribes together at Shechem for a covenant renewal ceremony. And and God himself is going to speak through Joshua, who uh, who, who, uh, took over, uh, succeeded Moses as both uh, the prophet, but also the leader of the people. Now Shechem was the place in Genesis chapter 12, verses 6 and 7, where God promised to give Abraham the land. And so it's fitting that God took them here to trace the history of his faithfulness to his people from Abraham all the way up to the present day. Our passage this morning deals with the first part of the covenant renewal ceremony in which God reminds the people of his mighty works on their behalf, of his gracious dealings with them throughout their history. In the next section of Joshua 24, God's going to tell them what their duties are, their obligations. And in this way, it mirrors the giving of the Ten Commandments. And the preface to the Ten Commandments, what, what is the preface? It's, it's, this, uh, it's telling God's people, God telling his people what he has done and why they ought to be obedient to him. And then he gives the commandments. It's, it's the good old indicative. Here are the statements of fact about what I have done, followed by the imperatives. What you should do, which has been preceded by the why you should do it. As we work our way through the sermon today, I'd ask you to consider this. The mighty deeds of Jesus Christ have washed you clean of sin, and he remembers them no more. Let me say that again. The mighty deeds of Jesus Christ have washed you clean of sin, and he remembers them no more. The sermon is broken up into three parts. The first, from Abraham to Egypt. The second, out of Africa. And the third part, the conquest. Again, from Abraham to Egypt, that's the first part. Out of Africa is the second. And then the third part is the conquest. And you can see it just follows the flow of this first half of chapter 24. 
So let's look at the first part, from Abraham to Egypt. We've already seen that the Lord has gathered uh, all of Israel at Shechem. And then Joshua, once they're all gathered there, gathered there, he summons the elders, the heads, the judges, and all of the officers of Israel. And they presented themselves before God, which means that they stood before the Ark of the Covenant. That, that was the, the mark, that was the sign, the symbol of God's presence with them. And in verse 2, Joshua said, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel. And so at this point, Joshua is speaking of, as a prophet. And the words that he utters from here on out, these are the very words of God himself. And so the Lord begins to speak in verse 2, saying, Long ago your fathers lived beyond, beyond the Euphrates, Terah, the father of Abraham and of Nahor, and they served other gods. Now God now is he's taking the people back to the very beginning of the people of Israel. He speaks of their fathers, Terah and Abraham his son, and he says that they served other gods. They were not followers, they were not worshipers of Yahweh. And by telling them that Abraham and his father served other gods, God is reminding Israel that their fathers did nothing to deserve the favor of the Lord. They were worshiping idols. But out of this idolatry, God plucked Abraham. The only thing that they deserved was God's just punishment. But despite Abraham's sin, despite his father's sin before him, God called Abraham out from the worship of false gods and brought Abraham to himself. Abraham had done nothing to deserve it. And indeed, we might even say God called him against his will, in a sense. God says in verse 3, Then I took your father Abraham from beyond the river and led him through all the land of Canaan and made his offspring many. Now this is a very fleeting reference to God's promises to Abraham in Genesis 12, and then he repeats these promises in Genesis 15 and Genesis 17, when he promised Abraham that he would give him the land of Canaan and make him the father of many nations. It was a gracious act that God called Abraham out of the land of Ur. And more, more importantly, it was a gracious act that he called Abraham to himself. Abraham didn't deserve it. His idolatry should have resulted in judgment. Dale Davis says in his commentary on Joshua, that is the grace of Yahweh. It all started here in unexpected, unimaginable, unexplainable grace. Abraham rose out of the desolate pit and miry bog of paganism only because Yahweh touched him. God had mercy on Abraham and subsequently on his children all the way down to God's people in our day. Abraham deserved judgment, but he received grace. And the same goes for Abraham's children, his true children. God says at the end of verse 3 and in verse 4, I gave him Isaac, and to Isaac I gave Jacob and Esau, and I gave Esau the hill country of Seir to possess. But Jacob and his children went down to Egypt. Now Seir was a territory to the south of the Dead Sea, which came to be known as Edom, which means red, which refers to Esau, who was described after he was born as being red all over. Jacob was the son of Isaac upon whom God had set his love. And so it was through Jacob, not Esau, that the descendants of Abraham would receive God's blessing. But Jacob and his descendants went down to Egypt. That's a strange blessing. We read in the New Testament 
about how God says that Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. But it's interesting that Esau gets land and Jacob's descendants get exile. They get enslavement. And so to the outside of uh, those outside of Israel, it would have sounded like Esau got the better deal, a large territory for him. But Jacob and his descendants were enslaved. But as this passage teaches us, even the hard providences of the Lord are a part of his perfect plan. And so the Lord can remind his people of these hard providences, even when he's telling them about his faithfulness to to them. You see, their enslavement, their captivity in Israel was not a mistake. It was not an error. It was a blessing. Because their time of slavery sets them up for God's deliverance in the form of Moses and Aaron, who are mentioned in verse 5. Now, to a cynical observer, the list of God's achievements so far doesn't look so good. He's made promises to Abraham about making him into a great nation. He's made promises to Abraham about giving him this land, all of the land that he can see. And how has it worked out so far? Abraham had to wait 60 years after Isaac was born, until Abraham was 160 years old, before they find, before Isaac finally produced two grandsons, Esau and Jacob. And as one commentator put it, God does not appear to be in a hurry. He is not driven by the calendar or intimidated by the clock. Yahweh did multiply Abraham's seed, but he did it slowly. He does what he promises, but sometimes so gradually that we don't see his faithfulness. We easily lose sight of what Yahweh has done by demanding too much too soon. That brings us to the next point of the sermon, out of Africa. Verse 5 brings the historical review up to more recent times for the people of Israel in Joshua's day. God says that he sent Moses and Aaron to the people of Israel in Egypt, and he plagued Egypt, and afterwards brought Israel out. Now this phase of Israel's history is the one that the people standing before Joshua would know quite well. Many of the people standing there had, had witnessed the events that God is reminding them of. They are the generation of people who were 20 years old or younger who came out of Egypt with their parents. And verse 6 says, Then I brought your fathers out of Egypt, and you came to the sea. And the Egyptians pursued your fathers with chariots and horsemen to the Red Sea. This, this event was the central event in Israel's history. Their deliverance from Egypt. And specifically their miraculous crossing of the Red Sea on dry ground. Verse 7 says, And when they cried to the Lord, he put darkness between you and the Egyptians and made the sea come upon them and cover them. And your eyes saw what I did in Egypt, and you lived in the wilderness a long time. Now think about that. That's a very sanitized and, and succinct version of history here. The Lord says, You cried. The crying out of the Israelites in his verse, this verse sounds so benign, but in Exodus chapter 14, verses 10 to 12, we get a slightly fuller picture of it. Exodus 14, 10 says that when Israel reached the Red Sea, they cried out to God as the Egyptian army approached them. That's pretty much what verse 7 says in our passage. And then verses 11 and 12 say this, Then they said to Moses, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? They're saying this to the Lord. 
What you have done to us and what have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. When God recites the history of Israel, when he tells Israel what their parents said, he simply says, and when they cried out to the Lord. Now, many of the second generation of Israel would remember this part of their history. They would remember that God was now omitting. They would probably have been thankful that it was being omitted. It was a gracious thing for God not to mention their parents grumbling and complaining. And he does the same when it comes time to recount their parents' 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. And we might refer to this as God's covenant forgetfulness. He is literally remembering their sins no more. But when their parents cried out at the Red Sea, verse 7 continues, saying that God put darkness between them and the Egyptians. He protected them from the Egyptians. And when they pursued the Israelites, he crushed the Egyptian army with the waters of the Red Sea. And just as God glossed over their parents grumbling and complaining at the Red Sea, he also glosses over the reason why they wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. All he says is that they lived in the wilderness for a long time. That's all he says. If you have faith in Christ, this is how God looks upon your sin. Though in reality, in truth, it is heinous in his sight. It is rebellion against the Lord. This is how he remembers it. You wandered for a time. By God's grace, it has been forgotten. That is the nature of grace. Though God could have brought up the parents' rebellion, He could have brought up their subsequent 40 years of punishment, He could have brought up the denial of them uh, to them entering the promised land as a cautionary tale to this present generation, He doesn't do it. God's focus is not on their parents' sin. God's focus is on their deliverance, His faithfulness, His grace to them. He's saying to them, this is what I have done for you. This is how I have rescued you. I have kept my word to you. And then he'll go on to say later in chapter 24 of Joshua, so you should keep your word to me. Well, that brings us to the third point of the sermon, the conquest. Verses 8 to 13 contain a very brief summary of Israel's conquest. And it begins with their battles with the Amorites. And according to Numbers, Numbers 21, all Israel wished to do, when they encountered the Amorites, they just wanted to pass through this land to get to the promised land, but King Sihon would not allow it. Instead, he gathered all of his people against Israel, and he tried to destroy them. He attacked them, but he was soundly defeated, as the last part of verse 8 says. They fought with you, and I gave them into your hand, and you took possession of their land, and I destroyed them before you. Verses 9 and 10 contain a summary of the events described in Numbers 22 and 24. After defeating King Sihon and the Amorites, Israel fought against Og, king of Bashan. And then they encamped against Moab. And verses 9 and 10 say, Then Balak, the son of Zippor, king of Moab, arose and fought against Israel. And he sent and invited Balaam, the son of Beor, to curse you. But I would not listen to Balaam. Indeed, he blessed you. So I delivered you out of his hand. Balak was going to pay Balaam 
this prophet, to curse Israel, but God would not permit him to curse his people. He told Balaam in Numbers 22, verse 12, You shall not curse the people, for they are blessed. Balak persisted with Balaam, and he finally agreed to go, but God would not permit him to curse his people. Instead of curses, Balaam blesses Israel. And God delivered his people out of the hand of Balak. Verses 11 and 12 contain the most most recent history in this review. And this was no less remarkable than what God has already recounted. Verse 11 reminds them of their crossing the Jordan River into the Promised Land, of their battle against Jericho and Jericho's astonishing defeat. Israel should not have been able to defeat this impregnable city. And then the Lord gives a list of nations that they have conquered, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Hivites, the Jebusites. And each of these nations God gave into the hand of Israel. Each of these nations could have brought about the end of Israel, but God fought for them and defeated their enemies. In verse 12, God says that he sent the hornet before his people, which drove them out before you, the two kings of the Amorites. Exodus 23, verse 28 says, And I will send hornets before you, which shall drive out the Hivites, the Canaanites, the Hittites from before you. So what God promised in Exodus, he fulfills, as the Lord says in verse 12 of our passage. Now, it might be somewhat remarkable that God literally would use hornets. And of course, uh, some people say it was a figurative use of the language, that he, that he was speaking figuratively. But I think in a year when we discovered on top of everything else the presence of murder hornets in the United States, it seems reasonable that God could use hornets to drive out the enemies of his people. God stresses at the end of verse 12 that it was not by Israel's sword. It wasn't by Israel's bow that the kings of Canaan were defeated He can send an angry species of flying insect to defeat Israel's enemies if he so chooses. And then verse 13 says, I gave you a land on which you had not labored and cities that you had not built and you dwell in them. You eat the fruit of vineyards and olive orchards that you did not plant. In other words, all of the blessings that Israel now knows and has come to enjoy, perhaps even takes for granted by now, all of them have come from the Lord. They now live in cities they didn't have to labor to build. They enjoy the harvest of vineyards they did not have to labor to plant. God has made this land flowing with milk and honey their own. And by it, he blesses them. Now, God could have gone on for chapters and chapters about all of his blessings upon Israel. But this was sufficient. This was enough. It was more than enough to show Israel why they ought to be grateful One blessing from all of these would have been enough to remind them of the great debt of gratitude that they owed to the Lord. But in this passage, God has given them numerous, countless reminders. And just like Israel, we don't deserve God's blessings either. We've done nothing to merit His grace, His mercy. Just like Abraham, we were deserving of nothing but judgment before the Lord called us to Himself. Because of our sin, the only thing that we deserve is his curse. But God has blessed us. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, has defeated all of our enemies. 
the things in this life that we can be so afraid of, the Lord has already taken care of them for us. And we who are in Jesus Christ, we know that there is no true harm that can befall those who believe in Jesus Christ. Like Abraham, God has called us out of the death trap of idolatry to true life in himself. We now worship the living and true God and not some false God, not some idol. He has given us a portion among his people. The judgment that we deserved fell on another, even the Lord Jesus Christ. And like Israel standing before Joshua, you and I, we are called to remember God's mighty deeds of salvation so that we can know with confidence that if we have faith in Jesus Christ, he remembers our sin no more. He looks upon us not as those who are strangers, not as those who have rebelled against him, not as those who have sinned and violated his holy word, but as his precious and perfect sons and daughters. Because we have been covered with the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And that, brothers and sisters, is good news. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you. We thank you that you remember our sins no more. And we thank you that you give us the ability to remember your wondrous, mighty deeds. We thank you for your history of salvation that you have set forth in your word, that you've recorded for us, that we have it, that we can read it. And we thank you, dear Lord, for our own personal histories of salvation that each of us knows. We pray, dear Lord, that you would help us to recite them both. We pray that you would help us to reflect upon your goodness to us. We pray that you would remind us of how you have delivered us and your people throughout history. We pray that you would remind us of how when we would not seek you out, you sought us out. You found us and you brought us home. And we pray, dear Lord, that you would remind us again and again that you don't remember our sins. We thank you for this, O Lord. And we pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.